Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom International Broadcasters live stream. And today I am most happy. And look at me, a lady in the middle with all these good looking, intelligent, critical thinkers. So that's my lucky day today. And with we are all coming from different countries from Canada, John Katsavos, Germany, Hartmut Schumacher, Ireland, Karl Moore, and all the way in Asia, Steve Fierro. And of course, with us is our featured guest, Gregory Lightstone, which I also say that his last name is just perfect for what he does. He is a geologist, and not just a geologist, but he is well-known proponent bringing inconvenient facts that Al Gore doesn't want you to know based on science. And so he has this, he published inconvenient facts and this has been a number one bestseller in the world and it has been um, translated into many languages. And you know that if a book is translated to many languages, that is an exceptional book that all of us must pay attention to. And Gregory is also the head of the coalition organization. And he can talk more about it. But first, I also am proud to wear a shirt that says CO2. <laughs> and so thank you so much, Gregory, for being here. And I just proud to make a shout out. So let me just ask you, what brought you to write this book? Because you've never written a book before. No, I didn't. Actually, uh, it was my own personal search for the truth that led me to write this book. I didn't set out to write a book. As a geologist, I knew that some of what we were being told about climate change was just wrong. I just knew it was. I suspect that other things were wrong that were being told. And it was this personal exploration for the truth about climate change. And I, as I got into it and I researched fact at so-called so reported fact after fact, I found that what we were being told time and time again, just the science, the facts and the data just did not support those things. Uh, you've heard, you know, increasing floods, fires, uh, increasing sea level rise, increase, I mean, one of them is increasing toenail fungus for crying out loud. And Things like this, just crazy things, um, uh, impeding the growth of frogs in the in the Amazon. It's it just stupid. And so it was this, as I got into this, it frankly angered me what I found. Uh, just uh, just a, a, a terrible misuse of the scientific process uh, to advance what has turned out to be a political agenda. Uh, with this Green New Deal movement, with uh, promotion of, of carbon taxation schemes. Um, and what, what's being proposed is, frankly, a regressive taxation scheme. By that, I mean what's being proposed and what's doing, being done all around the world in terms of increasing our energy prices uh, hurts the poorest among us the most. And we should, we should be opposed uh, to these things, this the, the climate science and the policy should be based on uh, scientific facts, not political statements. Well, is 
let's go to the basic because most people get confused with the difference between global warming and climate change. Could you please share that information to the public? Well, they're, they're one and the same, actually, because we, we are in a warming trend. We just, we are. But the fact of the matter is it started more than 300 years ago, back at the, uh, at the depths of what was called the Little Ice Age. Uh, coldest part of this part is called the Maunder Minimum. And we've been warming in fits and starts ever since that period. Uh, so we've been warming for 300 years. Uh, but they're saying, well, yeah, the first 250 years were naturally driven, but that all changed in the middle of the 20th century. No, it didn't. Those same natural forces that were driving temperatures higher for 300 plus years are still in action today. Uh, We'll often hear, oh, well, uh, last year or last month or last week or yesterday was the warmest ever on record. Well, that would be true if your record only goes back to 1800 or 1850. Uh, we have to put this as a geologist. I put it in the long-term perspective. And we need to look back thousands of years because these warming and cooling trends are on uh, 1,000 plus year cycles. So 1,000 years ago, in the middle of the medieval warm period, it was warmer than it is today. Uh, and the uh, we, we know that for many, many factors, including crop growth, uh, where they were able to grow wines. Uh, for example, the, the Vikings on Greenland were growing barley uh, on 1,000 years ago. Uh, you can't grow barley there now. It's too cold. Um, we can go back to the the one before that, the Roman warm period, and find that the Romans were growing citrus in the north of England near Hadrian's Wall. Well, you can't do that today. And so uh, if we look, we're being told, oh my God, it can't. we can't let it get a degree and a half or two degrees warmer, or it's going to be famine, pestilence, and we're all going to die. Well, no. Why don't we look back through human history and Earth's history, and what happened during those previous warm periods? In those previous warm periods, Earth's ecosystems prospered and thrived, and humanity prospered. And before climate science became politicized, those warm periods were called climate optima. And they were called climate optima for a reason. Both Earth and humanity prospered in those previous warm periods. So who do we trust then? Because, you know, one... The one information they always talk about science, also scientists here, studies here. And then, of course, you know, just by observing nature from an indigenous point of view, we observe nature. And it seems like what you're saying is observable. Crops are growing. And I'm, I'm, I come from the Philippines, so I enjoy the warmth. <laughs> but who do we trust? Yeah, that's a real problem. Uh, the the political, the science community has become a political community uh, that self-censors anyone that disputes this notion of man-made catastrophic warming. Uh, I'm just the CEO, I'm executive director of the CO2 Coalition. We have a group of some of the top scientists in the world, physicists, geologists, statisticians, energy experts. Uh, and and we I'm just I've received a, a new commentary, a lengthy commentary from Patrick, Dr. Patrick Michaels yesterday. Uh, I'm editing it this weekend. It's going through peer review, uh, but he talks about again about this corruption of the scientific process. 
And in fact, our chairman, um, Dr. Will Happer, who's an atmospheric physicist from Princeton, he along with Dr. Richard Lins and another physicist from MIT, these are some of, some of the top scientists in the world that you may have heard of. Um, and they, they, they just had a, um, a commentary that was just hard hitting and explosive, uh, published yesterday in National Review. That's that's wonderful. Talking about this, the title was "There Is No Climate Emergency," uh, and and they use they use the so these are real scientists that are talking about this, uh, and so I'm proud to be to be part of this organization, the CO2 Coalition. Uh, and if you want to learn more about it, you can go to the CO2Coalition.org. Uh, There's a lot of good information there, and uh, we're we're I look at us as the tip of the spear when it comes to uh, promoting the science uh, we, we basic we're it's the co2 coalition and we promote the many benefits of increasing carbon dioxide and you don't hear that very often I, i've got a bumper sticker that looks a lot like your t-shirt in the back of my suv and and uh, i wear that i love co2 t-shirt also to the to the gym it's a great conversation starter Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything that you do. And I'm sure many more questions will come up. I'll pass it on to Carl this time. Hello, Gregory. <clears throat> Very nice to have you on our podcast. Jeez, <clears throat> um, uh, there's so many different areas that you could talk about from uh, putting uh, thermometers on tops of roofs uh, in industrial areas, urban areas that have become more populated over over the years and they use that as a sign of increased warming. They selectively pick the, the thermometer readings. Then there's the ice core samples and the galactic record, 800 year lag, where it's the temperature rises first and then the CO2 that's been sequestered then comes out. Very simple one, you know, what I've been kind of looking for, I was more into this a few years ago, but there's so many things that pop out, but it's like, unless they can answer that, I mean, there's some fundamental things that can't be, they don't address. Um, it, it goes on and on. Uh, the Milankovitch cycles, are, are we in them? Are, are they taken into account into these models? Um, the Al Gore, when he came out with his inconvenient truth back in 2000, and I think it was one or something, 2000s, um that was that was uh, uh I, I just I, I I was I had actually bought into it at the time I was concerned but when I started to look that was when I started to look into it because I started to care uh, I wanted to know like you find out the truth and then there was just these basic fundamental things that couldn't be answered uh certain things in the in the model uh, so many things that aren't taken into account. Uh, to be able to say that they're able to model nature and project a uh, hundred years out is is, and yet they can't predict the weather out to three or five days accurately. So anyway, I, I'm ranting. Perhaps I should ask you about carbon dioxide levels. That when you give plants higher levels of carbon dioxide, they respond quite appropriately which might suggest that they evolved in a higher CO2 level. And if that's the case, uh, the earth is well used to these higher levels. It's not an issue. Yeah, yeah we saw the first woody plants evolved uh, 
prior to the Cretaceous and, and, and the, it, we, we had the flowering plants then evolved. At both of these times, uh, when these the, the first woody plants evolved, and then millions of years after that, the flowering plants uh, called the angiosperms. After those, we saw that lots of CO2 was being removed from the atmosphere and sequestered. In other words, that uh, the woody plants, we saw the rise of the coal swamps in the Mississippian and Pennsylvanian age. Uh, that Those coal swamps just sucked a huge amount of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so we're we're currently a little less than 420 parts per million of, of CO2 in our atmosphere. Earth's history uh, averaged 2,600 parts per million. That's six and a half times what it is today. Um, and actually, we've been in a 140 million year dangerous decline in CO2 levels. In fact, we're at some of the lowest CO2 levels in Earth's history today. Yes, we've gained about 130 parts per million, but that's a that's fairly minor compared to what it's been in the past. CO2 levels in the past have gotten up to 8,000 parts per million. And if you look at, I, I don't have it with me today, but I've got a CO2 meter that I bought. Uh, if I put that outside uh, in the morning, uh, it'll be around 400 parts per million. If I bring it inside, uh, where it's in my apartment here with two humans, me and my wife, and my black cat that's up on the on her little bench up here, uh, it easily goes up to seven or eight hundred parts per million just because of the CO two that we're exhaling. Um, so the answer, the the, the problem is, uh, looking in the long term, we don't have too much CO two. We don't have enough. And there, you talked about these other plants that evolved. You're right. Uh, most of these other plants evolved when CO two levels were well over two thousand four and five, six times as much as we have today. Um, there's Those are called the C3 plants. The C4 plants evolved uh, during a time of very, whenever CO2 levels dropped, it was a niche that they fit because they can utilize lower CO2 levels than what the other ones were. And th those are crops like corn. And that's why some of these, what are called C4 crops, uh, they benefit from more CO2, but not nearly as much as most of the other crops. In fact, in my book, I capture uh, studies done by uh, Dr. Craig Idso and his team. These are laboratory studies where they monitored and controlled the CO2 levels. And he's, he's determined that an increase of 300 parts per million will lead to a 46% increase in crop growth, biomass. Uh, that's a good thing. So more CO2 means more food. More CO2 means we're greening the earth. By, I was just preparing a, a, for a presentation on Tuesday. Uh, every single uh, ecosystem has been benefiting from this, from, from forest to grasslands uh, to herbaceous, uh, all across the board. Every, every niche you look at has been greening and thriving and prospering, and it'll continue to do so because of increasing carbon dioxide. And that's why I love carbon dioxide. I really do. Yeah, it's a building block of life. It, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it's it's even you know we're taught like even in our blood uh, when we breathe in our respiratory cycle that CO two is a poison. However, uh, you do require some of it to release the oxygen that's being transported. So if you get rid of CO two altogether, uh, you you'll, you'll die. You need CO two. Um, and, and, and it's very strange this, I mean, uh, 
I remember reading Victor Schauberger, known as the water wizard, um, back in the 40s and 50s in Germany. And he uh, had a great knowledge in water. But he was saying uh, the problem with the, what man is doing with the environment is he's, he's using up the carbon. He's using up the uh, uh, carbones, he used to call it, which would refer to all this organic matter, coal and things like this, that we're wasting it because it's valuable stuff. Um, and now we're, we're, we're taught that it's, it, it, it's a poison. It's bad. You have to exhale it, all these sort of things. Um, uh, so, uh, so just another question uh, regarding um, the fact that it's warming now. I mean, there's climate change. Um, and so it used to be global warming. Then it became climate change. And then if you speak out against, you become a climate change denier. But no, that's not it. It's a climate alarmist skeptic. Is perhaps climate crisis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. it was the, yeah, I mean, they're calling it a climate crisis now. They're, they have to go to more and more and more extreme terminology. And that's what they're, they're doing. You can see that with the uh, so-called acidification of the oceans. They're no more acidifying than... than um, I'm Rip Van Winkle. They're just not. They're uh, they're hit. Absolutely. There a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I have a good friend who who works in in dealing with corals down in Florida, and I asked him a few years ago. You know, is this the acidification of the oceans that's causing the problems? He says, No, it's people. People interfering. Um, but it's also I've heard down in the uh, the Barrier Reef that it, it, it coral reefs seasonally or not seasonally but periodically bleach out, and then they return. And this isn't talked about either. Um, so please comment. Uh, there's so many different areas. Yeah, well, yeah, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef it does occur periodically, and I believe it was 2016 uh, was the most recent bleaching, uh, and there was a lot of it bleached. Uh, they don't know exactly. What causes the bleaching? These are stresses that are introduced. And it could have been a slight warming of the ocean that did that. But we know that warming will not cause coral reefs to die because you could just go a little bit further north uh, into Grace's home area. Those oceans are much warmer than, than at the Great Barrier Reef. And yet corals thrive in that very hot, the, the, those hair, hot, very hot water. Some of the most... most uh, uh, intense coral growth are found in some of the hottest ocean, ocean oceanic regions. So uh, the Great Barrier Reef's doing very well, and the polar bears are doing very well, thank you. Uh, so these are just, they'll use anything they can. And you, you ask, who can we trust? Uh, my, my good friend Patrick Moore, who has a new book out here, Dr. Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace, uh, he's, been, he's using some, something I've, I've adapted, and he says, if you read a report or a study that includes the words might, may, or could in the first line, just you better, your alarm bells ought to go off. Because he says, uh, researchers claim that global warming might do X. And he says, well, it might not too. They don't, they just, they, they throw these things out there. Uh, and then they're all always, these are predictions based on models about what may or may not happen. Um, many years in the future. And what I like, I like to do is I look at what's actually happening today. And if global warming and increases of CO2 were going to have an effect on the atmosphere, we should see some reflection of that today. And we don't. We just don't. 
by almost every metric, we find that the Earth's ecosystems and the human condition are, are thriving and improving, not getting worse. And I, I'm, it's, it's a story that should be celebrated and told widely. Yeah, absolutely. The very fact that the, the oceans of the sea are that keep their salinity, despite all these changes, they don't understand why it has this great ability to maintain this homeostasis and, and to get all wound up about it uh, because science is able to produce these beautiful uh, pictures. Uh, uh, I think a lot of scientists get carried away creating pretty satellite pictures and things like that without actually understanding what's involved. Um, uh, but one, one last thing, Gregory, uh, is um, there's, a, there's a competing theory out there um, as regards, well, there's many reasons for why the, the Earth may be seeing a warming trend. Uh, and there's the, there's the electric universe theory. And it talks about the fact that we're the Earth, the solar system is going into a denser, electrically denser part of the, the galaxy. And this is causing the pressure uh, and that affects magnetic fields, um, uh, ionized particles coming in, cloud formation and, and, and global warming uh, immediates it. So um, the universal electric universe aspect uh, affecting Earth's weather. Do you, do you have any insight into that? I've read, I've read enough to don't believe it at all. I just, I can't, I can't, sorry, I don't buy, no, I don't buy, I don't believe that one little bit. I okay. Because okay. I mean, you can see, I mean, if that's the case, what's happening today should be different from what's happened in the past. Instead, what we see are these large cycles over the last 10,000 years of temperature rising, temperature falling, temperature rising. And if that were the case, then the, is that what caused all the other temperature rises before? I don't think so. Uh, I, if you're going to ask me what is causing, you know, these several degree temperature rise and falls, I, I don't know for sure. And I'm okay with saying I don't know. Um, but I think it's probably closely, closer related to the solar uh, activity. Uh, well, yeah, what, what, what that's what I was inferring, but I was, I was saying, I suppose in that I was saying, uh, that sunspots and solar activity in the, the magnetic field of the sun is affected by larger galactic events. Uh, and, and so, but at the same time, I'm not saying that that's the sole contributor uh, or factor causing what we see. I, I would think it would be many factors involved. But this is just one aspect that I wanted your feedback on. So yeah, I, don't know, I, yeah. I don't know much about that, so maybe yeah. I shouldn't even comment. But I, I don't, <laughs> okay. I, it, okay. I, I've got pretty good radar radar on those things, and and that it doesn't sound right to me. So, okay, well that's another discussion. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll pass you on to uh, John. Uh, Hi, Gregory. Uh, I'm John Katamos. I'm a I'm a personal trainer by trade. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to be asking you a, maybe a question or two uh, regarding CO2 and a, a human effects on the human itself. But before I do, I just I do want to ask you. Um, the economic impact of moving from uh, oil to uh, what are they calling a green green economy? Because here in Canada, it has been directly affected with our uh, with our oil production that we ship down to the U.S. 
and it's in, it's it has almost crippled our economy next to what's going on here with the COVID situation. That cancellation of that of that uh, that pipeline that led into the U.S. for processing is gone, and many people are without jobs. So I just wanted to uh, I wanted you to maybe comment on some on that. Well, yeah, there's well, what they're the impacts that they're planning haven't hit us yet. Uh, it will the chickens will come home to roost in the, over the next several years whenever uh, they're bound and determined to enact. And you have it in parts of Canada, uh, carbon taxation, uh, they or uh, you know carbon trading, whatever you want to call it. All of these things are designed to raise the cost of energy. And when we raise the cost of energy, and particularly well, both the electric and transportation fuels, it impacts the poorest among us the most. It's a re regressive taxation scheme. And it's these people are saying, oh, well, there, there was a lot of recent talk about um, climate justice and environmental justice. We have to help those people. Well, their very policies are will, by definition, impact those people they say they want to help uh, and it's just going to when you raise the cost of, of uh, energy you're going to raise the cost of everything across the boards if you're <clears throat> you know if you're manufacturing widgets or whatever it is you need energy to do that and uh, the only people that are going to benefit from that that are solar panel manufacturers uh, and wind turbine construction companies uh, the the regular Joe and Jane on the street uh, will be impacted greatly, and this is this is this is true in the United States and across the world. Uh, we see uh, in Harmut's uh, Germany, Germany is paying double the cost for electricity uh, as, as what they are to the neighbors in France. France has adopted a, a pro nuclear. About eighty percent of of the French electricity is generated from nuclear. In Germany, as Harmut knows, that they've they've had what do you call it, the energy wind, or I believe it is energy wind, uh, yeah. policy uh, to get rid of to get rid of coal-fired electricity and nuclear. They've been pretty successful, um, but what it's done, you just parts of Germany just recently in February went through a near uh, catastrophic. Uh, downfall with their electricity generation, similar to Texas. It was only narrowly averted. A lot of people don't know that. And that's because they're relying on, on wind and solar. We're, we're, what we're planning to do, not just we, I mean, in the United States, we as global citizens, what, what's trying to be done here is to uh, enforce policies in electricity generation using uh, electricity generation that's not reliable, that's not abundant, and not, not affordable. Uh, John, the, the those are the three three words that we need for good energy energy policy and good electricity production. It needs to be reliable, abundant, and affordable. The only one that meets all three of those are coal coal fired electricity and natural gas fired electricity. Nuclear meets two of those terms. It's a, abundant and reliable, but it's certainly not affordable. And wind meets none of the categories. Uh, wind is, we're, and you talk about the economies. What happens when we go through regular brownouts and blackouts? Uh, what you're going to be having are these buildings that will be having uh, 
diesel powered generators to kick on. If you if you've ever been to Nairobi, Kenya, uh, they have black house and brown house there all the time. And is it, when, whenever 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 they have one, you can hear these diesel generators all over Nairobi kicking on and belching out black smoke. Uh, so yeah, I'm it's. Well, it does not make sense. We cannot go to net zero uh, at this time. We, the technology just isn't there. One of the arguments is the, that, you know, uh, elect, uh, electrical power, like hydroelectric power. But the problem with that is that you need batteries in order to store the extra, the excess energy. Now, I now forgive me because I don't know exactly where I heard the stat, but in order for Tesla to create one one lithium ion battery, it creates <laughs> enough enough pollution as you driving a regular gasoline car for seven years. I, it's something like that. Yeah, it takes it takes quite a few years before you actually uh, start saving energy compared to what it takes to create that that Tesla. Uh, but you were talking about hydro hydroelectric. That's a great energy source. It really is, and it's it's uh, it, it's called clean. Although I'm not I'm not opposed to something that emits carbon dioxide. As as Grace and I both know, we love carbon dioxide. But uh, hydroelectric is is a great energy source. But it's it's only applicable in some areas. And do you think that uh, anywhere in France or Germany, uh, that there would be any significant, or United States, there would be any significant new large hydroelectric dams and lakes created? I don't think so. And it, would, it wouldn't happen here in the United States. They're trying to tear them down. Um, but 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 hydroelectric, uh, for example, Norway has a lot, um, but their, their terrain is situated, so it makes it very applicable. Um, in some places like Costa Rica, uh, they have abundant hydrothermal energy from the volcanoes that are active and but again this is a, it's a rare area that can that can do that that's a great that's a great energy source is this uh, not hydro but the thermo uh, electric from the volcanoes yeah well we have a big one here at Niagara Falls so it's not too far <laughs> um, moving towards to, towards us like as as a human being like Carbon dioxide from being a personal trainer and studying the human body for the past 10 years, maybe even longer. But like as a professional personal trainer, carbon dioxide is critical for, like, like you said, like tra uh, transitioning um, oxygen into useful, useful energy for us. What, what are your thoughts on putting a mask in front of our faces and us inhaling the carbon dioxide back into our system? Because yeah, that's not how we're supposed to be designed. No, I wish I had my mask. And for, I've got some pretty cool iHeart CO2 face masks. I should have brought one. Uh, I I don't, I wish I had bought, there was a little extension for my CO2 meter that I, I'm going to order so I can put that under my mask. I know if I hold my CO2 meter in front of me, it quickly goes to five and 6,000 parts per million. Um, now the OSHA, uh, in the United States here uh, says it's not dangerous until you get over 10,000 parts per million. Uh, so we have a long ways to go, but breathing in five and 6,000 parts per million, which you will probably have in that face mask. Uh, it's probably not going to, it's not going to kill you, but it's certainly not going to be anything beneficial. Uh, 
And like I say, I wish I had, I'm going to have to get that little, there's a little extension that comes you can put inside the mask. It, it's got to be six, 8,000 parts per million uh, in that face mask. Would that drop if somebody has respiratory issues, say allergies, something simple? No, I don't think it would drop because you're, you're exhaling, I think around 4,000 parts per million, four or 5,000 parts per million or, or more with each breath. Um, but but again, our levels that we are, we are at right now are, are extraordinarily low compared to most of Earth's history. Okay, thank you, Steve. Hey, wow. So uh, I think it's important to get some some of the simple dots out to the public that right now the current CO two levels are four hundred and twenty roughly parts per million, and that's very low and that plant life and the earth cannot live without CO2. And it's at critically, we are at critically low CO2 levels right now. And that the fossil era and the most abundant time on earth plant wise was when CO2 levels were at, I think what, 8,500 parts per million or something like that. Well, most of it, like we know that plant and animal life thrived at much, much, much higher levels. Uh, just even if it's 2000 parts per million, it's which yeah. occurred, you know, the, we can go back millions of years, uh, 60 million, 140 million years ago it was, it was 2,600 parts per million. Uh, and we've been in, in a dangerous decline. And, and why is it dangerous, Steve? It's because we almost got to what I call the line of death at the end of the last ice age. We got to the, some of the lowest levels ever. And we got to 182 parts per million. And why is that dangerous? Because at 150 parts per million, plant life can't survive. Well, if we had crossed that line, that would lead to a true climate, not just a climate crisis, but a planetary crisis uh, if plant life can't survive. Of course, we couldn't. And nothing else, maybe the algae in the oceans would be just fine, but um, none, none, nothing that lives on Earth would, would, would be able to prosper. And we nearly got there. So we're recovering out of that uh, dangerous decline in CO2. And we're liberating now through these, these fossil burning of, of coal. And um, I should have a piece of Marcella shale here that's behind me. Uh, you'll see that it's black and it's full of organics. And, and this Marcella shale uh, is, is found in the Appalachian, the eastern United States, the Appalachian Basin. And it's, it's the largest natural gas reserve in the world. And as they're drilling it and fracking it using horizontal drilling and fracking they're liberating this uh the the carbon that was locked up in the shale they were muds when they were deposited organic rich and they turned into uh, rocks that are now shales that were 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 liberating the gas out of those shales and and freeing up that carbon that was trapped uh, 200 million years ago wow so that's a good thing yeah is that in a sense Oh my goodness! Yes, there's okay. the, yes. Carbon dioxide is is one of the basic building blocks of. And, and let me just digress just a moment. I was just talking about the Marcellus Shale. I know something about it. I co-authored the the first comprehensive paper on this gigantic natural gas reservoir. Uh, at the time, we looked at it. We looked at all the natural gas fields in the world, and if you combined all the other, the next fourteen, we looked at the fifteen largest gas fields in the world. If you combined the other 14, they equaled 
how much gas in place the Marcellus has. Imagine that. The next 14 combined are as big as this field here in the United States. It's the, the size of it is incredible. It's just, it is absolutely mind blowing. It's, it's hard to get your arms around it, just how big this natural gas reservoir is. And, and it's to our benefit. And uh, I'm, I fear we're gonna squander this with some of the policies that are being proposed. Okay, so um, not, I'm gonna kind of jump around because I think it's important. The first thing we got out was, you know, that CO2 levels on earth are at dangerous levels, dangerously low levels. And that in our circles of truth, um, you know, there's uh, the New World Order and, uh, you know, Al Gore wrote the book, The Inconvenient Truth, and you wrote the book, The Inconvenient Fact. And in my eyes, my cynical eyes, the inconvenient fact is that the inconvenient truth is a total lie and just a giant false flag and key piece of the, you know, it's an essential piece of the puzzle for the globalists to carry out the, the New World Order. So... My point is the whole global warming thing was a false flag created by the Club of Rome in 1972. Deliberately, it was a planned, architected, engineered thing to fit into advancing the new world order. And uh, what a lot of people don't understand is, well, I don't get it. Why would they ever do that? And, and, and who gains from that? So just like war puts billions and billions of dollars into the, the pockets of the people that make the missiles and the bombs, and it's a racket, so is this. But can you explain a little bit how there's the motive of creating this inconvenient lie and, and, who, and how they take the money out of the taxpayers thing, and they can also blame us for the, you know, the, 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 the destruction of Earth that isn't true and advance yeah, their new world order? I'm going to take a pass on that, Steve, and please forgive me because I'm a scientist and and I, I, I intentionally stay away from as much as I can from the politics. And I'm asked that question by lots of hosts. You know, basically, why are they lying to us? And I, I can't look inside of men's and women's souls to see what their motivation is. But I will tell you, as a scientist, you're saying, why are they lying to us? Right. Isn't that your question? And and. I'll turn it back and look at each one of you. Each one of you is just as qualified as I am to tell us why they're doing it. I can arm you with the facts that says, yes, they're lying. This is what they're saying. And this is what the truth is. I can arm you with those facts. But you, each one of you and each one of your listeners is just as qualified as I am to tell me why they're doing it. Uh, is it power? Is it greed? Is it taxation? Is it control? Is it destruction of the uh, of the, uh, the, the the capitalism? I don't know. I've heard all these things proposed, um, but again, I'm you know why they're doing? It, I don't know. I, I, I okay. You know who can who can say? There, there are a lot. I, yeah. I think a lot, but I think money has is plays a large role here, as does control. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So. Um... Then the last thing is, I don't know, remember all that talk about the ozone depletion and the ozone layer depletion and it's uh, heating, you know, is there, a, I'm just curious, is that no one, you don't ever hear the word ozone layer ever. Yeah. Is, that, is, is there any truth to that? Like, a, a, you know, the destruction of the ozone layer and it's bad for us and it, it is depleting. I think there was some truth in that. And I think we were harming it. The more I read, I am not an expert from what I can read. 
it appears that there was a problem there with the destruction of the ozone because particularly mm-hmm. chlorine, the chlorofluorocarbon, chlorine, uh, and as it got up into the ozone layer, it, it's a catalyst for destruction of ozone. By catalyst, by definition, you don't use up, if you, if you have a catalyst, it's not used up in the process of catalyzing something. So it can, that, that chlorine molecule catalyzes an event, but then it, it's still there. So it, it takes a long time. There's, uh, there's also a fascinating theory uh, one of my colleagues and a friend has, who's also a geologist, of the, the relationship uh, where some of the big heating events and cooling events in the, in the Earth's history were driven by increases or decreases in ozone. Um, and a lot of that has to do with giant volcanoes. And, and well, not just volcanoes, but giant uh, magmatic events of this flowing lava that would spread, you know, the steps in, in Russia uh, across the northwest of the United States, these and it's not explosive volcanoes, but rather they're, it, and what they're doing is venting uh, lots of lots of things that either destroy or create ozone, and it's that ozone that that, that protects us from the direct uh, warming rays of the sun in some cases, in many cases. So, I, I think of all the of all the things you might think of as as bogus climate events or things like that. I think that the ozone was actually a problem, the, the, the reduction of the ozone layer because of chlorofluorocarbons. You won't hear me say that about much of these things, but that, that might be one that we actually did the right thing there. Okay. And the, just real quick, the deforestation, I heard that when trees are cut down, they release CO2. Is that is that yep. true? And then with all the deforestation, you would think that you know, we would have had a, a big rise. If that's true, we would have had a big rise in CO2. Um, I'm just curious. Well, right now, the forest areas are, are thriving and prospering and growing. Uh, and we've got, I, I've just uh, partnered up with a team in Brazil. Uh, they're called the Intellectos. Uh, they're uh, actually might be an interesting guest for you to have on, Rafaelo Nascimento. And uh, they've, they've created this, this kind of the counterpart to our CO2 coalition, a group of scientists in Brazil, they say, we want to get the truth out about the rainforest. Uh, so one of the things in terms of biomass I'm looking at right now, I've, I've just started exploring. I, we may have a paper, I'm going to put a team together uh, to expose this, this notion of biomass that they're using uh, to create electricity. So what they're using, they're cutting forests down to burn them to create electricity. What could go wrong there? A lot. And there it's, it's going on. We're, we're cutting down eastern hardwood forests across eastern United States, including Virginia, mature forests, and shipping it to, to the United Kingdom for them to use in these biofuel uh, plants. And, and it, it's just horribly destructive uh, to the environment. Uh, and they're, they're claiming it's, it's beneficial because the new growth will consume uh, the more CO2 as they're growing, but you're shipping it over and burning it and emitting all that CO2 from what you just cut down. It doesn't, it does not make sense. Uh, and it's the same thing we look at. And they look at the UN's biodiversity study that was released, which was a total crock in their conclusions, but their, their main conclusion they were right about the biggest uh, threat to biodiversity and extinctions are loss of habitat. So, 
what's what what's their solution to to this? It's to put up square thousands of square miles of solar panels and cut down millions of square miles of, of forest to put up wind turbines. So I guess we have to we have to destroy the planet in order to save it. And that's the same thing with these biofuels, destroying forests to benefit the planet. It, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to, does it? No, it's not supposed to either. Um, so thank you very much. I, I have more questions, but I'm going to pass you to Hartman. Thank you. Gregory, pleasure to have you here again. <laughs> and um, I, well, I want to go a little bit more in the politics because in the U.S. Uh, in January you have, um, let's say it this way, the president likes uh, the climate emergency. And uh, the interesting thing about the climate emergency is that it will unlock more than 130 unilateral executive actions. And for example, states like um, Texas, they, well, it looks like that they will lose uh, their environmental regulations concerning oil and gas, for example. Do you have a comment what it would mean if the emergency, if the climate emergency would, yeah, would get an action, would the, that they would put it in, um, they would, yeah, they would, that they would put it in action? Do you have any comment about that? Well, there, it, it's clear as the nose on your face. It would have, of course, it'll, millions of people will be out of work, uh, including my son-in-law works. Uh, he works in, up in the Pennsylvania Marcellus Shale uh, on, a, on a job up there. He's, it's hard work. He'll, he'll lose his job. Uh, and just to put it in personal perspective, if what they do is going to go through, my son-in-law is going to lose his job. He'll have to take an, another job, probably paying one third or one half of what he's making now. My, my daughter with my two grandchildren, she'll have to go back to work. And that's, that's just my family. That's what's going to happen to our family. And that'll be replicated across uh, the United States and Canada and the world uh, time and particularly the United States, millions of jobs lost. And it just, it boggles the imagination that they're trying to do this. They already, they've already cut tens of thousands of jobs immediately on day one when they, when they axed the the uh, pipeline out of Canada, and he's banned leases on federal properties, and a large number of our oil are on those federal leases in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so it's yeah, it, it economically destructive would be the right words. Okay, so it's uh, so to, uh, additionally to the measurements concerning health, it would be uh, quite dangerous, I guess. For example, if we have both things together at the moment. Well, well think about this, too. Uh, the week that Joe Biden was inaugurated president, it was the first that week was the first time that America did not import one barrel of oil from Saudi Arabia during that week. So we've worked decades and decades to become energy self-sufficient. We finally got there. And now they want to turn that off, change our dependency instead of being dependent on the Middle East for oil. They want us to be dependent on China for lithium and cobalt and rare earth minerals. That's what it is. China controls some 80% of those minerals that are required for this electrification of the United States and the world. And we're just, uh, it's, I don't know about you. I, if, if my country was going to be dependent on one part of the world or another, 
I don't think I'd want to be depending on China for anything. I see. I see. And um, there is, um, let's say, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, and uh, they seem to, let's say, they seem to do something against these people. And um, interesting is they they are called or they so, some say that um, they are right-wing orientated and so many big companies like Exxon, Shell, Google, all they left this um, um, organized membership. And do you have also a comment concerning what their role is in this game? Or do you? Um... Well, I'm familiar with Alec and they're, they're a good group, but again, it's, it's tough to get a message out there because it's so dominant. You mentioned some of these large companies. Uh, they're buying in and virtue signaling as hard as they can. Uh, Exxon, Mobil, BP, these all have adopted this uh, dangerous notion that man's influences and increases of carbon dioxide are leading to catastrophic consequences. They're, they're, these companies, these energy and oil companies, they're buying the rope that they're going to hang to hand to the hangman as they're going up the gallows. Here, here, use this rope. And that's what they're doing. They're, They're, they're supporting and their own self-destruction. And, and it's, it, it's, it boggles my mind. I've just been in a conversation over the last week with a, he's actually the CEO of one of the largest natural gas companies. And he's come out in favor of this uh, moderate agenda. Well, no, I mean, it didn't work out. You know, appeasement didn't work out very well in World War II. And it's not going to work out very well right now. If you're, if you're in an energy company and you're trying to appease your enemies that are causing what are probably an existential threat to your company and all of your employees, uh, I'd fight as hard as I can. And they're not. Uh, I see. Thank you. And um, my last question, because China bought also in Germany and in whole Europe, in the whole world, they bought a lot of water. The, the whole sweet water was bought by them. And um, for example, lakes, etc. cetera. And, uh, and if you, um, and for example, for lithium, for the production of lithium or for cobalt, you need a lot of water in order to get it done. Yeah, and um, do you have also a comment on that? How, how, how much water is, for example, uh, yeah, that the water is, or can you confirm that there is so much water used instead of for a human being for this production of lithium? Yeah, I, I don't know a thing about that. I'm going to plead ignorance. I, I, I've not heard anything about that and don't know anything. So I, I'll, I'll step back and not say anything. Okay. No, that's okay. No, the, um, no was great. Thank you. I, I passed to Grace. Thank you. Can I, can I say one thing, Grace, here before we get in here? We, we're talking here about China. Uh, I think President Xi right now is rubbing his hands together in glee because he would he would not like nothing better than a, a United States that's economically crippled, and they would have been able to pull some strings. To, they don't have to do a thing now. They're, we're, we're crippling our own economy by enacting these, these policies, and... Uh, I'm sure that China is very, very happy and will encourage us to do that. Well, uh, they they have, in my opinion, this is my personal opinion, they have transformed the world economic, world economic in a flea market. 
And now they can buy everything what they want to have. And for example, in Germany, they do it already. Uh, hotels, um, middle-class companies, robotics, car companies, they have increased all their shares, they have increased and they bought everything what they can do. And we have established and on the 31st December, the European Union and um, China made a contract in order to work together very close. So it is it is like that, that Germany, and I have to be very careful, but Germany has the opportunity to become a leading company, uh, a, leading, a leading company, a leading country together with China. So Germany and China are creating an access, uh, uh, yeah, a common connection. And this is, uh, well, someone can say dangerous, but um, that's how it is. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Grace, your, your turn. Thank, thank you all. So what I wanted to do is bring the comment from the uh, viewer. And in continuation with that China comment, Someone wrote here, how much does the U.S. contribute to the so-called global warming? India and China are probably the biggest contributors. And yeah, there's, Well, the, the thing about Chinese emissions and India, uh, their emissions are increasing quite a bit every year. And that's predominantly because they keep increasing uh, their CO2 emissions due to coal. Uh, fire production. And Prime Minister Modi in India just last week came out aggressively and said, if you think that we're going to scale back our electricity, coal-fired coal -fired electricity production, because the world thinks we should, he, he, he said, heck no, I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Uh, he's, 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 got a, he's on a mission. He wants to electrify India 100%. And he knows that he can lift his people the some 800 million out of the one plus billion people there are living in just horrific destitute generational poverty. And he wants to change that by providing reliable, abundant, affordable energy. Um, and, and they're going to continue doing that. And China, what, what is terrible here is that China is exempt from anything in the Paris climate accord until after 2050. And they're exempt because they're, they've been, uh, described and defined as a developing nation. So they get a free pass and they can go back and applaud the rest of the world. Yeah, you guys are doing really good. You're you're cutting your emissions. Keep going. You need to do more. Meanwhile, they won't they, they're not going to do anything. They're going to keep their plan is to keep increasing their CO2 emissions up to a certain day. I believe it's 2050 they say they won't they'll, they'll cut they'll start cutting their emissions. Well, What's it going to do? We'll already, you know, we'll, we'll be already in, in chains to the Chinese lithium, cobalt, and, and uh, uh, rare earth elements. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, so yeah, India, China, and Africa is also increasing uh, their coal-fired electricity production. And they need to, because they can, again, we, we can lift these people up out of generational poverty, and we can provide electric uh to these people so they don't have to cook over wood and dry dung in their homes. That, that alone causes some 4 million deaths a year from people with health problems related to cooking indoors with, with wood and dry dung. Uh, those, 
those are easily preventable deaths, and we could prevent them by providing propane, condensed natural, compressed natural gas, and electric. Uh, let's do it. Thank you. Thank you. Another comment in relation to Canada. That Canada has excess hydro resources. Pump storage is great. However, you need nuclear power to make it affordable. Any comment on that? Uh, I don't know about affordable. And pump storage, if you don't know what that is, that means uh, you can pump, you can have a lake and pull out of that lake with hydropower and then pump it back up the hill to refill the lake or storage. Uh, it's not a very efficient system at all. Uh, and it's probably only uh, affordable if you're going to take all the subsidies that the government might, might fund for, for creating these things. And it's, it's the rare area that actually has the geography in place that you can actually do that. And uh, to ask you about the Vostok ice core samples and what the analysis does. Oh, well, they're, yeah, you're talking about the Antarctic ice core samples. They go back 800,000 years. Uh, one of the most fascinating things about that was what Carl had talked about was this uh, idea that, well, it's not an idea, it's a fact that we know that carbon dioxide changed and then the temperature followed the carbon dioxide, or not, excuse me, the temperature changed and then carbon dioxide. Carl was going like this, no, no, no. Had it backwards. So the temperature changed first, and then, and then carbon dioxide changed hundreds of years after that. And that's because, uh, and we know that. So that we had these great, over these 800,000 years, we had eight great glacial advances and retreats. Um, and so when it started warming at the end of the ice age, and we're, in, we're in an interglacial period, warm period right now, uh, it took, it takes quite a while to heat up the ocean or cool the oceans and the oceans are the the great drivers of carbon dioxide and when the oceans warm up they expel co2 and when they cool they absorb co2 and it sounds counterintuitive because i know your 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 listeners are going wait a minute uh, i can dissolve a lot more salt or sugar uh, in a hot pot of water boiling water than i can cold and that's true but it's just the opposite for carbon dioxide um and just think about this if you had a a liter jar of ginger ale and you pulled it out of your refrigerator and opened it, it would just go and put that same liter jar on your patio in the middle of summer in the sun. Now open it up and man, it'll explode like a volcano. It expel. And that's, that's because the warming liquid expels CO2 and that's the CO2 that comes out of that, out of that soda. Uh, and we see the same things with the oceans and CO2. So when it starts cooling, the oceans take, hundreds of years to cool down, really. And when, once they start cooling, they start absorbing CO2 and pulling it out. So that's probably one of the mo most impactful things uh, that we can pull out of the out, out of those long Antarctic ice core, uh, ice cores. He said, and my question is, are we in a cooling phase? And if so, how far into it? Well, that's a fascinating question. And the answer is, we don't know. We might be. I don't think we are, because again, geologically, looking at the other warm periods in the past, uh, those warm periods that occurred cyclically, cyclically in the past, um, were longer than what we've been in this one. 
Uh, so I think it's likely that we'll have another 50 or 150 or more years of warming. And that's okay because we know that it's been beneficial in the past. Uh, but then again, it certainly could be that we're close to or in the next cooling phase, which would be bad. It would. The next cooling phase is going to be the other ones were horrific. Uh, the other cooling periods were associated with crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. Uh, we can expect that. It probably won't be as bad during the next cooling event because we're not moving food around by ox carts and we've got refrigeration. Some of these things will uh, we'll be able to alleviate some of the problems there were in the past, but still crop failure will occur during the next cooling phase, just like it has in each one of the previous ones since the first great civilizations arose. Thank you so much, Carl. I was pressing the wrong button, sorry. Um, yeah, um, a question. With the lockdowns over the last year, um, is that a good data point? Has it showed any uh, reduction in warming? Or, or, or would you expect that over that period of time? Well, no, what's fascinating, even with these severe lockdowns, CO2 levels are increasing exactly the same rate as they were before the lockdown. It hasn't made one bit of a difference. And what's that tell us? We're going to have to have even, if, if we want to reduce carbon dioxide, this is atmospheric carbon dioxide, if we want to reduce that, we're going to have to go into even more severe lockdowns and remissions than what we just went through. Uh, we went through horrifically painful lockdown and, and CO2, atmospheric CO2 has continued to, at the same rate as it's been. We haven't seen a blip, nothing. So you're... We know, you're you're talking about the CO2 gas levels. Um, and then what about the actual temperature? Um, is there change in, you know, there's, there's, it's interesting that the levels of CO2 haven't uh, been modulated by this lockdown, but yeah, then- and they can, Yeah, they continue to rise. Uh, temperatures, depending on what you're using to measure, I like the satellite data, which is uh, the troposphere, which is above the Earth's surface. Um, University of Alabama at Huntsville, uh, they, they, their data is pretty good. And they're showing that uh, temperatures still continuing to rise modestly, about the same as it was before. But what's interesting, I, and I don't quite understand it, the, the surface temperature as measured by the Had, HADCRUT, which is Hadley Climate Research Unit, uh, and particularly the best, if we look at the United States, um, in 2004, because of the problems, you, Carl, that you mentioned before about uh, situating these thermometers and temperature stations up near buildings and getting the urban heat island effect, uh, they went through, they being NOAA, and, and created a, a system that's called the United States Climate Reference Network, uh, USCRN. If you want to Google that, there's great data, and United States Climate Reference Network. And in 2004, they... they created and identified 114 stations across the lower 48 that are pristine, that are not affected by this at all. And if you look at that data, there's been, it's been, now it's going up and down, up and down and up and down, but we we're about, we're actually a little bit lower today than what it's, the one it was measured in 2004. So that's, and that data is, is unaltered. They have the actual data that's not been modified. And that's hard to find, as you know, Carl. You sound like you're pretty well read up on this. Uh, 
that that's really fascinating. In fact, last month uh, was the lowest temperature anomaly that was re recorded uh, during that period since 2004. And that 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 disagrees with the atmospheric satellite data. And I've I've talked to the people that actually run those, and they're they they don't have a good explanation for it either. But we know that both of those are are happening. So it, it's. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one to measure because you want to measure it at the the surface of the of the ocean or, or the land, but the ocean, um, the very top surface, it evaporates, and so that can vary by a few degrees. And there's all these other problems. But here's I, I have a question regarding then sea levels um, because I understand they're always talking about sea levels rising, but there's also places where sea levels are lowering as well. So, uh, so satellite data seems to be the best for. No, I don't. Oh, I don't okay, no, that was the question. Um, what what what's the best for them? Because the satellites are in this very stable orbit, and they talk about measuring I don't know centimeters or something, but maybe that's a differential measurement. So, what well, what do you suggest? Yeah, it does. It, when when you see those, they this is the tricks. These are the tricks they pull. There are four different satellites that were used. If you look at the satellite data, it looks like a slight acceleration in sea level rise. But if you if you separate, they, they have to play tricks with these satellites because their their orbit is degrading. So they have to try and modify to correct that. And so they're trying to measure sub-millimeter differences in sea level rise, which is incredibly different, difficult. So there are, I'm not going to go into detail as why there are problems with these. Um, but they, there are four different satellites that are used that because they some of these they only last for a decade or two or whatever it is, and they have to get another one up there. Uh, so these can continue. The best record are the uh, tide gauges that have been around for hundreds of years, measured uh, at various points around the world. They're 150 or 200 long-term tide gauges, and they're actually measuring the the levels there. And we see that uh, according to these tide gauges. Uh, sea levels started rising in the mid-1800s, and we've been rising at about the same uh, level uh, on an annual basis. It hasn't increased. The, the rate of increase is not increasing. And, and you say, well, Greg, you told me that it started warming 300 years ago in the late 1600s. Why did sea level only start rising in mid-1800s? And that's because it took that long for the atmosphere and the earth to warm up enough so that summer ice loss exceeded winter ice accumulation. As long as it was cold enough for more snow to accumulate in the glaciers on land than what melted in the summer, well then sea level would continue to drop. And once that warming kicked in enough, well then the glaciers on land started melting and that, that's, what, that's what contributes to sea level rise or, or land-based glaciers. You can make, you can melt the entire northern polar ice cap, and nothing would happen virtually to sea level rise. And that's because the northern ice is floating on water. Um, a lot of people don't realize that. So it's it's the it the land-based glaciers, and that's mostly uh, Greenland and Antarctica, but a lot across the northern hemisphere as well. Yeah, people say that there's glaciers melting because of global warming. Uh, but it could also be argued, it seems, that it's uh, <clears throat> the change of weather patterns, probably because of the destruction of uh, 
ecosystems. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Kilimanjaro in particular. Um, I, I don't think it's same moisture is, is going over that range. Uh, to, to I don't think so. I, I think it is due to global warming. And, and, and the reason I say that is that there's a, a, a really strong correlation we, we look through time with these long-term glacial records. We have glacial records from, I've got, I think it was 189 that I use in one of my charts of glaciers around the world. Uh, and those glaciers started retreating at about the same time as, of course, the sea level started. And again, it was in mid 1800s. And, and it's, and I'm okay that it's related to global warming. It, it, I think it is for sure. I just don't think it's human caused global warming. And it's, it's, it's nothing dangerous. But you also see too with uh, the, uh, uh, Park Service put up uh, signs in Glacier National Park here 20 years ago. There will be, you know, this glacier will be gone by the year 2020. Well, they've taken them down because the glacier is still there. And uh, a lot of failed, it's just one of the many failed projections. I would, one, one last question is regarding ties in with this volcano thing and the heating of the earth from below rather than from the atmosphere. Um, I, I hear that there's an increase in seismic activity over the last few decades. Would okay? Would would? And I see you're nodding your head to answer that question. Would you contribute any uh, sea temperature warming uh, due to seismic activity that we that we see? Well, you might be confusing seismic activity with volcanoes and. I am. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So with I, I it's fascinating you say that because right now. Uh, if we look at Antarctica, they say, oh, Antarctica is melting. The Thwaites Glacier, the, it's the, it's the, if you, Thwaites, if you just Google that, you'll see, and there, it's because of, of warm, warming oceans that are melting it from below. No, it's not. It's, they're warming. Yes, it is. The warming oceans are caused, the Western Antarctica comprises about 10% of the entire continent, is over one of the most uh, volcanic, uh, intense volcanic areas in the world. There's some 200 plus uh, active volcanoes that are heating up the ice and it's in and i've got the geology it's a plate boundary right there a geologic tectonic plate and those volcanoes are all on you can uh, it's a fascinating relationship there uh, so yeah i think that part of that i don't think there's been an increase for per se there's uh and, and again that that's warming that small part of antarctica the rest of Antarctica looks like it's increasing in ice. That that part appears to be losing ice, um, but the overall effect of there goes my cat that never should goes across my my screen. I don't know if you saw her, but uh, uh, that's that. But that's that's the solution. So you're kind of correct in terms of volcanoes. And I will say one of the big fallacies out there concerning volcanoes. You might hear people say, well. Uh, volcanoes, one volcano, Mount Pinatubo, put out more carbon dioxide than all of human activities. Well, that's just not true. Uh, volcanoes emit much less than 2% of the increase in CO2. It's, it's, it, was, it was put out there by a geologist from Australia called Ian Plymer, and he was wrong. He was right about a lot. He was wrong about that. Okay, great. Uh, Gregory, I'm going to pass you on to John. He has a few questions. Thanks. 
a few questions. I got like a thousand questions to ask you, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm only I'm just gonna keep it uh, to two to two more questions. Uh, the one question is. Um, has there been an increase in volcanic activity? No. Or is it just the media that's just pushing out like 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 recently? Like I'll give you an, I'll give you two examples. Uh, Vesuvius went up earlier this year, and um, there, there's a volcano in Iceland, I believe, that's consistently erupting right now. There's. Uh, I think I think they have predicted that uh, Yellowstone National Park, which is a super volcano, is due to yep. pop. I don't know how true these things are. So they're not true. They're not true. They're, yes, yes. There's a a magma chamber under Yellowstone. Yes, it will probably explode at some point, but it's probably in the much distant future. It's it's not due to explode right now. It's due to explode. At, you know, it might be in a hundred thousand years, and I know I'm, I'm trying to take care of myself, but I'm not. Don't think I'm going to live that long. And uh, but that's the if we go through these. There are periodically these huge volcanoes that go up, uh, and we, I, I've not seen any indication there's been an increase in volcanic activity at all. Uh, but you're right; they it, it's blown up in terms of media coverage, just like they uh, hurricanes are. Or, you know, it's a media firestorm whenever they do those, and they're so I I have not seen any, and as a geologist, I we, it would be I'd be all over that, uh, but but there's not been any any global increase in volcanoes. Okay, and that kind of ties into my next question with uh, kind of like with the the sea levels, like everybody's saying that uh, over the past uh, decade, if you will hurricanes have actually uh increased in in severity and in strength that have hit like you know eastern coast usa but recently um i don't know if uh, if you guys are familiar with what ha what happened in like in southern southern europe like uh venice the the the, the streets the the canals in venice dried up and in uh in greece the the shoreline actually receded like meters upon meters so i don't know does this have any impact with what um with like this quote-unquote like global warming stuff that they're talking about no there's extreme weather is actually in decline and the extreme weather death deaths again i'll go back to the united states have declined some 99 percent of extreme weather deaths have declined 99 percent over the last 100 years that's well documented uh, the hurricane last year was a heavy hurricane season. That happens periodically. My friend Joe Bastardi is one of the top weathermen in the world. He's predicting another uh, heavy hurricane system. But these things occur periodically. We look at, at going back to 1850, uh, I capture in my book uh, the landfalling hurricanes that hit the United States, and they've been in decline. Uh, last year was an exception. Uh, one of the things they used, too, is the difference... Uh, they, they've, they're kind of cheating a little bit. They're now, they're saying, oh, well, the number of named tropical storms has increased significantly. Why is that? Because they're naming them earlier. They're named, they dropped the weather, the, the wind speed to name them. And so the, a, a weather pattern that might have arisen 10 years ago never got a name. Well, now they're naming it. 
Well, of course, you're going to have more named storms if that's the case. Uh, that's just not it's so no severe, severe weather patterns. Uh, we know for, for a fact, and that's very, very well documented, the tornadoes uh, in the high F3 and above tornadoes are, are definitely have been in decline in the United States. Um, these things are, you have to be careful about what they report. Uh, and if we just, let me just give you a great example about sea level. Uh, the UN issued a report in 2005 that said that there would be 50 million climate refugees uh, around the world. And they named six of the most at-risk islands. Well, and that was by 2010 that was supposed to happen. 2010 came around, of course. And I looked at the population of these islands. Well, the populations had exploded. People weren't fleeing these islands. They were flocking to them. And one of those islands that they uh, continue to say is most at risk is the Maldives, an island chain of nations. What are they doing in the Maldives? There are three large resort hotel complexes that are being built on the ocean shore on the seaside. Well, these are tens of millions of dollars that's being funded by equity companies and insured by these large insurance companies. Both of those companies avoid risk like the plague. They, they, if, they, if they thought there was going to be a risk of sea level destroying these, they're not going to insure them. They're not going to fund them. And that's just a great example of people, actually people taking a close look at this and saying, yeah, it's pretty safe. We're going to, we're going to build this $30 million resort hotel complex. And I think that's, that's a really good example right there. Just like Florida's going to sink kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I'll pass it on to Steve. Go ahead, Steve. Okay, Gregory, thanks. So in sur surmising, we've determined um, CO2 levels on Earth are low, and we perhaps we're in a global uh, warming period, but we're not sure if it's natural or slightly man-made. Um, and then there's a there's an aspect to Earth that cleanses itself. I know one of the Great Lakes was so polluted, and they left it alone, and it it purged itself. So when you see pictures of industrial pollution and smokestacks, and in a sense, we need more CO2. I mean. Do we need to worry about industrial pollution causing global warming, or can we just have an unabated party of, you know, drive your car, fly your plane, and, 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 the, and the earth will not only cleanse itself, but we need the CO2? Well, I, I think some people in, in, in conflate pollution with CO2 emissions. There's a, there's a huge difference there. And uh, so there's, I mean, pollution, of course, we, we need to fight against that as much as we can. And we need to... Uh, Obviously, I'm, we're all conservationists. We're all environmentalists here. Who isn't? Uh, but I, I can just tell you here in the United States, our environmental, our EPA, uh, if you look at that data, just Google EPA and pollution to find out. You'll get a chart showing pollution over, I think, I think it goes back to 1985. Well, we've had significant improvement on both our air and our water in that time. and We continue to improve slightly every year. And we should all be glad of that and be very ha happy that, that that's occurring. And we should continue doing that. Uh, there comes a point of no of diminishing returns, though, whenever you get your pollution, your what you're calling pollution is at such a low level to try and get to that last part per billion or whatever it is down. Uh, it, it might be economically crippling to do that. But we should uh, here in the United States and in the Western world, uh, we should be very proud of what we're doing. It's some of these other developing nations where, where they do have bad, bad pollution problems. It's not good. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Great. Thank you. I'll pass you to Hartman. Um, now we have discussed so many subjects, and I would like to talk concerning the climate change with respect to the Gulf Stream, because um, in a in a in in one journal, and I think the, the journal for geoscience, natural geoscience, has said that the Gulf Stream is now moving more slowly than it has in the last one thousand six hundred years, and. In all the mainstream media, you can see the relation between Gulf Stream and warming climate. And uh, please give a comment on that so that we can also get a picture. How does the Gulf Stream fit in all these things in, in fact? Well, the, I read that study and there, it raised a lot of red flags as to the, the methodology used to conclude that. I didn't see any linkage myself, and I, I know there were a lot of, of our scientists and the CO2 coalition that just threw their arms up and went like this when it got when it got to that paper. Uh, I don't buy that. That There are a lot of studies out there saying all kinds of things that uh, we find when you really dig into them, the methodology is flawed and, and, and it's, it's not good. And I think this was, this was one of those. So the Gulfstream has in your opinion, nothing to do with the climate change or with the, with the, with the increasing of the temperature? The Gulf Stream has a lot to do with temperatures and weather and climate. But mm -hmm. I have seen nothing. Of course it does. It, that's why the United Kingdom and some of these others, we have, uh, it brings warmth in some areas. And of course that has something to do with temperature, localized temperature. Uh, but I don't see any I've not I've not seen any studies that I trust that indicate that that's changing right now. I see. Okay. No, that's. Thank you. This was this was the reason because we um, ten ten years ago, eleven years ago, we had deep water horizon. Yeah, and everyone said, oh, because of this strategy, we will have the the Gulf Stream will uh, collapse, and we will nothing happened so far, nothing at all. Yeah. And uh, now you don't you don't hear anything anymore. Yeah. This is yeah. That's another subject that's fascinating: are oil spills, and they're you would think they're catastrophic, but if you well, we, that's a subject for a different day because the, uh, the the nature and the oceans and and the earth the earth's processes actually deal pretty well with large volumes of oil in the ocean because uh, there's there are huge the natural releases of oil uh, through oil seeps into the ocean dwarf those from any oil spills that we've had. And the, the ocean and, and organisms naturally uh, degrade that oil and turn it into uh, useful, actually, fertilizer. If you look at the uh, Exxon Valdez spill, the, the ocean, the, the beaches that they, that they cleaned with steam and just cleaned them up, they were almost barren for, for biology. Uh, it, it, the ones that they just left go uh, responded. It took it took years, but those beaches are back to what they were before. Interesting. Thank you. I'm not advocating oil spills. Okay, I'm not. Oh, I'm course, saying... I understand. I understand. But uh, yes, because uh, in in maybe ten thousand meter de deep, uh, in, for example, on the on the ground of the of the sea, many oil is coming out of the of the earth. Yeah, it's it's a natural. It's, it's something natural. And as long as it's not 
let's say it's not a product which goes to the to the sea. For example, if uh, a vessel makes an accident, then this is something different. But uh, as yeah, long as out, all is natural. Yeah, and with the uh, BP disaster, it was it, the 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 kill wasn't nearly as large as they thought. Because if you're a if you're a halibut and you're swimming towards this and you go, oh, boy, that smells like oil, you're going to turn around and head the other way. And that's what they found happened. They that these the wild the, the animals tended to move away from those areas where they would have been harmed. And I mean, there were there were yes, there were fish kills. Yes, there were. Birds died, yes, but it, uh, not nearly as bad as they suspected. And then a lot of the oil just just they don't know where it all went. Uh, they knew that there was a lot of oil being um, spilled at depth, but it it probably was just incorporated or uh, converted to other by by organisms and, and microbes. Okay, thank you so much. I pass to Grace. Thank you. Mother pleasure. Oh. Gregory, how about speak on about the polar bears? Because we don't want the kids to worry about that and other polar bears lovers. Yeah, there's uh, Susan Crockford is the foremost polar bear expert in the world. And uh, she, according to her data, and I captured some of that in the book, uh, polar bears have been in significant increase and pretty steady increase uh, in the polar regions. And and we were seeing not we're, we're being told now here here's something i'm going to ask each one of you so the polar bear was the iconic symbol of global warming what 10 15 20 years ago have you seen that lately have you seen the uh, the polar bear as a as a symbol no you haven't why haven't because they it's what they were saying was completely false because they're if you risk there's higher risk of being eaten by a polar bear today than there was 10 or 15 years ago because there are more of them um, and, and again, I'm not advocating being eaten by a polar bear bear, but there are a lot of them out there. And one of the dirty little secrets about this is high ice conditions are actually detrimental uh, to the polar bears because they prevent them from getting to their main prey, which are the, uh, in the spring, the, the, uh, seal pups that they dine on quite vigorously. Um, and, and that's what Susan Crockford documents. She also documents that, uh, we see that there are a number of studies showing that low ice conditions lead to healthier polar bears because they're there's they're more critters to eat. There are more things out there and more easily easily accessed. Uh, and again, I captured that in my book. Uh, they looked at a, a high ice loss area versus a lower uh, ice loss area, and the areas of high ice loss uh, saw much uh, more vigorous population, much heavier polar bears, uh, healthier both males, females, larger larger numbers uh, of uh, polar bear cubs. Uh, so maybe an argument can be made that uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, dirty little secret is, you know, maybe you don't need all that much ice. Thank you. And there are two last questions from the viewers. And one of them you might have answered already, but let me just say it. He said, Watch, how does CO2 affect ocean life and the other one is, what's your thought on chemtrails? And would this affect the CO2? Yeah, the, in terms of, you were asking, what was the first question? How does CO2 affect ocean life? And 
That's the first question. The second question is, what's your thought on chemtrails and would this affect the CO2? Yeah, they, well, in terms of CO2 in the ocean, uh, the ocean and the algae thrive. And, and that's the end. The algae and the lower forms of life are really the, the basic fundamental resource in the ocean that all the rest of it thrive on. Everything's built on that. And they, they, they like CO2, higher CO2 levels. Uh, chemtrails are a fiction. I don't, I don't, I believe it's possible that we could alter the earth's temperature by using something like that. I just don't, I've seen no, no evidence. I know I get, I get asked that a lot. I, I, I don't think it's happening and I've not seen any evidence that it is. Uh, they're, the trails behind the jets are water vapor uh, that's created just period. And, and, uh, and I do want to say one thing I, I remember what I wanted to say about polar bears and ice conditions. So you got to like this. So taking a cue from Walt Disney, the simple bear necessities for polar bears might not include ice. How about that? Now you're going to be stuck with that song in your head. Thank you so much. Any last words that you wanted viewers to know upcoming projects? Well, just rest assured, there is no climate crisis. There is no climate emergency. The earth is thriving, prospering, and greening, and the humanity is benefiting from our, our modest warming and increased CO2. And if you want to do anything, if you're saying, what can I do? Go to the CO2coalition.org. Uh, there's a donate button there. Uh, I need, I, it's my mission this year is to get this information out there. Uh, I need to hire some more people. I just hired a gentleman this week. We're bringing on a couple of interns, uh, but it takes money to do that. Um, so uh, help us out. Throw me a bone. Send me some money. CO2coalition.org. Uh, again, we're, we're some of the top, these are the top scientists that are, that are backing this. It's not just Greg tinfoil hat wearing Wrightstone. It's, it's some of the top scientists in the world. Uh, again, Pat Michaels, Will Happer, Richard Lenz, and Patrick Moore, some of these big names, they're, they're on our board. I, I work with them on a daily basis and uh, help, help us get the word out there. How about uh, your inconvenient app? Yeah, my inconvenient, we, we, yeah we've got a, a, a really great smartphone app. It's called, uh, go to the Google Play Store or App Store uh, and search for inconvenient facts or inconvenient app. It'll come right up. Very, very popular. It's free and uh, it's awesome. It has all 60 of the inconvenient facts. You can have that app. You can have this carry you this with you at all times. Uh, that way, if you're out to dinner with your idiot nephew, Billy, and he says, Aunt Grace, did you know the polar bears are, are going extinct? And you can pull out your app and go, wait a minute, Billy. Here's fact number 52. Here's a population uh, chart of the last 60 years of polar bears. What about that, Billy? And Billy's, he'll be like, he won't want to know what to say. You've got the fat use. You can have this information right in the palm of your hand. And it's, it's a powerful tool. So inconvenient facts, uh, go get it. And, and you can that way shut your idiot nephew Billy up. 
I'll make sure I'll do that because children. Everybody's really, got an idiot nephew, Billy. Trust me, I do. <laughs> we cannot underestimate the children. And, you know, the two weeks ago when my little ones were here, six and four years old, and their first question is, where does water come from? See, there's deep questions. Yeah. So thank you so much. Where does okay. it come from? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to the audience. Yes, make sure and uh, all the information will be with this podcast and um, join us again next Tuesday or every Tuesday and Saturday. Next Tuesday, we have the David Ditchfield on a near-death experience and on the next following Saturday, we have Gabrielle Kowalski from Germany. So this platform, Freedom International live stream, brings you world expert source of medical and scientific information based on provable truth, actual science, established facts, unbiased medicine or healthcare, and unbiased and manipulated data. Because it seems like the world is some somewhat lost in its way. So please feel free support all the guests whom we have and please continue to join us. In my language, I say marvelous. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure again.